Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of 26.1 AI Podcast. I'm Brian Ray with my friend Don Shu. We have on our agenda today the second part of a two-part series with Matthew Rocklin and Hugo Baun Anderson, the creators of Coiled and the creators of Dask. Welcome back. Matt and Hugo, Anaconda has giant user numbers. And from what I can discern, far more than what would be included in a so-called developer survey of Python engineers of 8 million. Do you see your future in bringing a lot more people into computational proficiency and getting more diversity in there, solving these problems and being a force for good in that sense, that we'll have a lot more people looking at it, examining the data and acting on it. And kind of that median will be that human will for good. Yeah, I uh, actually, uh, just today, I taught one of our one of our sales guys how to use Python for the first time. He printed out hello many times. It was very exciting for him. I actually really miss that experience. I used to teach a bunch in university, and it's, it's very gratifying to give an individual the ability to quickly automate something. Like we, we forget sometimes about how much tedium there is if you don't know how to program. Um, it's also great that a sales guy is learning how to program. Like that, that is a game-changing thing. You would not have expected that, you know, five, 10 years ago. Uh, I think we're definitely seeing more programmers out there. And that I think is, is changing the way that our society runs and the way that our humans engage with information. I think we're seeing uh, a rise in digital literacy that might be empowering as the rise in literacy that occurred you know, a couple of centuries ago or still occurs today in some cases. Um, I think generally humans who know how to program or know how to interpret and inspect and ask questions of data will, will better understand and better engage with their world. I also think what I'm actually maybe more excited about is the growth of Python beyond Python programmers. I think we're starting to see a lot of applications uh, that, that target not programmers, but sort of peri programmers. We're seeing great you know, dashboarding utilities. Uh, one of my favorite Dask projects is a project called Napari, which is an is a, is a image viewer used often in, in biomedical imaging. Right? They're taking the awesomeness in the Python SciPy stack and they're applying it to people who actually don't know how to program. They're applying it to sort of not data scientists, but actual lab bench scientists sitting next to a microscope. And that kind of you know, programmers enabling non-programmers is also something I'm very excited about and really broadens a lot of our reach. It sounds like you guys are doing some amazing stuff. Are there any other use cases on the coiled stack, at least that you're allowed to talk about of interesting things going on? Or at least uh, customers or anything that are really utilizing your platform, taking it to the next level? Sure, there are tons. Yeah, uh, you want to talk about yeah, maybe, I'm, uh, I'm very excited. Andrew uh, Terrio, who used to uh, be at the city of Boston, running 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 data science there, recently built um, an election turnout model uh, using using Dask on Coiled and Coiled Cloud that um, is was then publicized in a series of uh, of Bloomberg uh, uh, articles, um, which was was really exciting. He it blew him away how quickly. Um, he could, you know, embarrassingly parallelize his m machine learning code 
in, in, in particular. So that's a really exciting use case that we just saw in, in the past couple of weeks and incredibly relevant to what's happening in the world at the moment. What I liked about that is Andrew was on his laptop using scikit-learn. Uh, he then needs to train, I think he was doing, uh, I think like election turnout forecasts for the US election, like a few days before the election, right? This is, you know, like very uh, timely stuff. He found Coil, Pip installed Coil, started using it, was able to scale up to hundreds of, of machines in the cloud, accelerated that work, and then got right back into his normal workflow. And so what I loved about this, and something that I really care about with Coil, is that it's it's very accessible, right? You can, he hadn't heard about it, or he hadn't tried it until he tried it. A few minutes later, he's running with it. He scales out that one particular annoying part of his workflow, and then he goes right back to his normal normal experience. He didn't have to sort of lift and shift his, his workflow experience into a product like Databricks, which he probably wouldn't have done. He just would have sort of use less data, he would have run fewer models, he would have done whatever he could to keep working on his laptop. Coil was able to, to come into his experience and, and have a nice positive impact. You know, Bloomberg Media was able to publish what I'm guessing are now inaccurate models, given what we know about the election. Uh, turnout was you know, not, not as expected. Um, but that's sort of just sort of sprinkling in the ability to scale into an otherwise uh, normal workflow is something that I'm, I'm very excited about in terms of increasing accessibility. And Andrew Mueller used the anal analogy of uh, looking at retinas. A doctor can only look at so many retinas, but a machine learning model can look at millions a night. Uh, yeah, I mean, along that same uh, that same theme, there's a group, I mentioned the Napari folks who do this biomedical imaging stuff. Oftentimes they need to do deconvolution. So this is, this is kind of like sharpening images in a very fancy mathematical way. And it's extremely slow uh, on CPUs, but on GPUs, it's very, very fast. And so what they found is that they'll just allocate a single GPU Dask cluster on Coil. Uh, and then they'll just ship the images to Coil, do deconvolution, ship them back. And that's actually quite a bit faster than running it locally. Um, and so we never actually expected Coil to be used for single node computation but it just ends up being sort of the easiest way to rent a GPU and to sort of integrate that into a local experience. And that allows, you know, that allows scientists to look at the images you're talking about, um, you know, with a frame rate of, you know, five or 10 frames per second rather than five or 10 frames per minute. And that again, changes the way that they- And it changes their, their flow with their uh, scientific yeah. workflow and process as well. I mean, historically they would need to, you know, load this data in, let it, let all the deconvolution, all of these like skewness and all, all of these things happen overnight and come back the next morning. Whereas now they pop away for a cup of coffee and come back and iterate immediately. And I think that speaks to Andrew's process as well. He tweeted out, this is Andrew Terrio who did the election turnout, the voter turnout model. He tweeted out something like, I actually didn't even have time to make a cup of coffee while I was waiting for my coil to dust code to run, which we found really exciting. How long before, how long before Coil returns people who use computation to the interface of like the teletype remote terminals? Mm. I think we're there. You could from a teletype remote terminal import Coil and and run. And that's that. one of the points I, I think to meet um, data professionals, data scientists wh where they are, so they don't have to go in anywhere else. Wherever you pip install something and write your 
Python or Pandas or whatever it is code, um, you can you can access Coil. It's something along the lines of something Matt refers to as uh, the principle of minimal creativity. Did I get that right, Matt? Um, so inventing once sure. again as little as possible, so that people do then their normal stuff yet have access to this large scale um, computation and clusters. Do you run into any compliance issues or HIPAA compliance issues or data security questions with, with that model? We certainly run into those questions all the time. I think the particular thing we're talking about isn't any more or less uh, concerning with HIPAA um, or other, you know, other concerns. Uh, certainly data security is something that we think about and care about. And this is also why you want to go with a managed solution. We think about security at a level that almost no other in-house group will think about. Um, maintaining HIPAA, HIPAA compliance or sort of the federal versions of those is mostly around making sure that your processes are in place, that all the data that you're storing is, is secured in a, in a sensible way. And also more importantly, storing as little data as possible. Um, so I mean, let me just maybe focus a little bit on what COIL does and doesn't do just for a second. So Coiled is designed to scale Python computation. We don't provide a, a development environment. This is what Andrew really liked about us in that he didn't have to move his, his developer experience elsewhere. This is also going back to the teletype question. Coiled can be run from anywhere that you run Python. Uh, and that is actually really quite distinct relative to competitors, maybe like Databricks, where they sort of own your entire space. We've already, I've actually built those systems before they're incredibly hard to get right, and no one agrees on what the right space is to work in. So by design, Coiled very much didn't want to get into the uh, sort of full data science developer platform. I think it's sort of not a good, a good, it's not an achievable goal. We also don't store computation, we don't store data, right? So typically data is stored, you know, on some cloud object store like S3, it's stored in some database like Snowflake, and Coiled and Dask are just there to you know, manage computation on that data and then write it back to that same data store. Um, all that computation can happen inside of your existing account. We're just calling the right Amazon commands to start things up, spin them down, track them, et cetera. So we're, we're a very light touch when it comes to invading the, the developer experience and a very light touch when it comes to invading the uh, sort of the data ownership problem which is what both of your questions, Don and Brian, I think are getting to. That's excellent. That's fantastic. Uh, so uh, just a step forward. One thing I don't, I didn't get the complete answer on is where do you think this is going to go? When you talk about machine learning and data science, like jump forward five years from now, what are we looking at? What are we in store for? Is it an Elon Musk vision or is it, dystopic or what are your what are your thoughts uh yeah so elon musk for for uh background is concerned about like general artificial intelligence and i'm going to guess that like this group is generally not as concerned as elon is about that particular topic um i think looking at the demographics of people out there you know no one is using deep learning no one is using you know very sophisticated systems people are just trying to look at data currently, and they, and they can't. And I think that in four or five years, we're gonna solve that problem where people can successfully interrogate 
uh, large, valuable, complex data sets at ease. I think that's really what I expect to happen. Uh, there will be advances in machine learning and AI, right? You know, voice transcription will get better. You know, human-computer interaction will be a lot slicker. Um, but I think really the, the, those, I think, are, are a bit more parlor tricks. I think the main thing that I'm excited about, that I am pushing for, is the ability for uh, my parents or my sister to be able to figure out, you know, if San Francisco will be underwater uh, in 20 years or not. Uh, by interrogating large climate simulations, for example. And that's, I think, the the much bigger... Yeah, I, I, I agree with Matt. And to build on it slightly, I get... I, I think I get... um, <laughs> I get slammed every now and then on Twitter for tweeting out something like, the future of data science... The majority of the future of data science will happen in GUIs or something stupid like that. Um, but I actually do, do, do mean that. And I, I don't mean that all data scientists will be working in... I think a lot of people will be writing code but we'll have a huge, incredible long tail of um, lots of people who aren't quote unquote data scientists, but they're working with data, uh, doing it um, in, in, in drag and drop in interfaces and, and graphical user interfaces and more intuitive uh, spaces. Um, I'm actually really interested in the future of um, uh, voice control for, for data science and, and these types of things that may be you know, 10 years off more, more than five, but I do think as Matt, Matt spoke to the democratization of, of this type of tooling um, is incredibly important. And the front end of this type, type of tooling. Um, the other thing I, I wanna speak to, let's move like pivot, get a bit of whip, whiplash going back to the like people writing code. What type of tools will they, they be using? Because we've seen a big movement of open source. Now we're seeing a big movement that like the productization of OSS and like the data tooling space is incredibly crowded. Um, we have behemoths as, as you mentioned, such as uh, such as such as Databricks, which may serve like very large scale organizations, but I, I don't think necessarily um, serves individual data scientists who need to move incredibly nimbly and, and use cutting edge technologies all, all the time. So I, and, and, and I, I know Matt agrees with me, um, envisage a, a not so distant future in which people can, you know, take best of breed products like like Coiled and, and Plotly and, and, and these types of things. and. And, and, and combine them, kind of this modular modularity of, of tooling uh, for, for technical people to build out all their cool stuff and, and, and their data workflows. Well, I wonder if we're already there mathematically. If you look at the users of Python, I imagine a lot more people, or if it's not already there, it'll get there commit their code in notebooks and it's not in Git or an IDE? I'd say there's a mix. Um, I, don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that notebooks are the future. I think that heterogeneity is the future. Um, but it's exciting seeing all, all of that sort of creativity. And they're also starting to blend, right? You know, VS Code runs notebooks these days. Well, I think we're uh, we're way past time, but since we have two people, I think going double time is appropriate, right? Is that how it works, Don? Yeah. Well, we haven't even really gotten to startups, so um, I mean, one. Okay, let's I do have... a couple of questions of startups, yeah. and then let these let these gentlemen go have turkey or get ready for turkey. <laughs> um. So Dask already has some amazing enterprises using it heavily. I think I saw a story about Walmart. 
Mm -hmm. For a startup like yours, how big of a boost is that in having a prospect list that come from the open source project you've created? Yeah, no, it's huge. Um, I mean, there's large enterprises as you're talking about. But there's also, I think, I think the Python Software Foundation survey said that like 5% of Python users use Dask today. That's biased because that group is probably more technical than your average user. But still, that includes all developers. I think Spark is somewhere at like 13%. So we have a huge sort of uh, grassroots user base. Taking off my open source hat and putting on my sort of for-profit company hat, my question now is how to turn that user base into a customer base. Right, Dask is sort of unique in how large it is, despite not having been productized in the past. We've sort of just been a community project. So yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's um, uh, the sales conversations that we have are are just fun. You know, they say like, "Oh, great! You know all the problems that I want to solve. You solve all those problems. Where do I sign?" People are very, very happy to give up the kind of um, we have a very strong empathy with our users already from knowing a bunch of stuff, and we we know them all, and they are just very very happy to work with us. So it's um, I feel like I'm cheating in making this company. Well, investors love to hear that, so good <laughs> on you. I mean, regardless of investors, I love to hear that we're making an actual company, right? It's it's um, it's very exciting the kind of uh, of outreach we can do. And the kind of response that we yeah, can and so it's good. I'm 100 percent confident you guys are going to uh, nail it. Appreciate that. Coiled. The, I think the it's proof amazing. will be in, in the pudding. I will build on on what Matt said slightly. By I don't know if I'm overreaching here, but you know Matt Matt does half joke that he never really wanted to start start a company, but people were like, "Come on, man! Like we really need this stuff. We need productized Dask and and, and distributed distributed compute." And that I really that you know. Being in a situation where there's already demand, that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make the job simple by by any means. Um, but it is it is a, a signal, um, you know, that, that it's important that the demand is is already there as well. Particularly, you know, in an industry where you literally we have directors of demand generation, right? So we need that, of course. Um, but the fact that there is demand already there is incredibly heartening. Yeah, maybe to, to sort of expand on, on what I mean there. Like the, the sort of the common story that we have is that there's a small data science group inside of some company. Maybe it's a data company, maybe it's a fashion company. Um, and they're using Dask today and they really like it. And there's one person who is sort of the first Dask user and they're now also like the cloud ops person, right? And they've like figured out enough of the cloud to run Kubernetes and Dask on top of Kubernetes. They're not doing it quite right. Like they know they're sort of burning, you know, three times as much money as they should be burning. And they're also like burning about a quarter of their time maintaining it. They see us, they say, oh great, that's exactly what I want. You know, you're a bit, you're a bit cheaper overall because you're more efficient and I get to stop doing this thing that I don't like doing anymore. Um, and they're all very, very happy to see us. And that story we just see over and over and over again. Um, I think that Dask as an open source project kind of reached the limit of growth without having a, a product company like coiled around it. It was, sort of, it was just sort of, it was hard and awkward for groups of people to use the project in any sort of sensible, secure, convenient way. That's a good transition to a question I wanna ask about 
what about your audiences now? In terms of you had a community of open source users, committers. Now you have customers and investors. How much do they align? Where is there some kind of um, finessing or kind of education going on? Explain people what the dynamics have changed and why it's good for the sustainability of the software that they love. That's a great question. I think a question that a lot of companies in this open source space uh, struggle with today. I think that we're actually pretty blessed in that all of those groups already sort of understand each other a bit and they're already pretty well aligned. Uh, so let's take a few different combinations of that. So uh, open source and commercial, like actually a lot of Dask was built under commercial contracts. Like we did a lot of support work in, in Continuum and Anaconda and NVIDIA. We built up a lot of these capabilities for customers that ended up benefiting the open source community. Turns out that like hedge funds and climate scientists actually have kind of the same problems and one group pays and the other group benefits. Um, in terms of, of messaging, it can be kind of interesting sometimes. So like Hugo and I sometimes have long conversations about, you know, can we say this? Can we not say this? Do we tweet this out with the Dask Twitter handle or with the Coiled Twitter handle? Which, which persona are we taking on here? And we do need to be careful around that, I think. And the developer community and I talk a lot about, about that relationship and making sure that we, we do that well. Um, there are other companies in the space, you know, in different spaces that sort of do that less well. I think we do a, a, pretty, a pretty good job there. Uh, investors, I think, are pretty happy. We're sort of this weird golden child where we have this amazing usership already. We're in this very exciting space. You know, they want us to serve this exciting space. I think everyone's actually pretty well, everyone's pretty well aligned right now. We serve a need of sort of deployment and sort of support around Dask that everyone agrees it is right to pay. And it's also, I was um, just going to add for investors, it's also the, the unsexy, sexy stuff. Like everyone's hyping about machine learning and AI, but data infrastructure is actually incredibly sexy for, for investors. <laughs> And for data, because it's attractive for organizations and, and data scientists and data engineers. Where I would maybe anticipate a little more, more attention is in the future yeah. when some competition around Dask arises, right? So I, I believe one of the major clouds is actually uh, building like a, a Dask competitor internally. A few of them have tried historically. Uh, they, don't actually, they don't actually succeed most of the time. Do you know who it is? Are you allowed to say? Is this a secret? Top secret? <laughs> I'm going to pass on that one. I don't know for certain who it is. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, Matt, if, if you want to do founder commiserating, I can introduce you to Brian LaRoe. He's doing a serverless startup called uh, Begin. And he's like the BDFL of JavaScript with the uh, Linux right. Foundation. Yeah. So that for him, it's a real constant anxiety. Yeah, well, let me... Does let me, JavaScript have structure? Let me dive into right, that sorry. for a second. And so, I mean, and that's and that's fine. Again, like large companies have tried doing this in the past. You actually need a lot of like cultural understanding in order to do this well. And the clouds have historically not had that understanding. They build like a, you know, like if you look at AWS, like the API is not the greatest for data scientists. They're not very good at that culturally. But I think that some tension might arise. And I think Databricks went through this where other groups start competing and now like the, the key that we hold is the, the deep understanding of Dask, right? I can do things with Dask that nobody else can do. 
And so now I'm incentivized to now make a better desk that is not open source. And it's at that stage, which happens in two or three years, where I think that tension becomes a lot bigger, right? And so how do we incentivize things such that Coiled is still trying not, is still just supporting Dask and not trying to sort of like proprietorize it, which is what you see with Databricks, right? Databricks internally does not run Spark. They run some very like tricked out version of it, which gives them a lot of advantages over Amazon and over Azure and over other groups. And so I think once more success and comes, I'll, that's where- I'll also add that there is a tension that I'm- We're not there yet. In, in terms of building a startup based around OSS for someone like yourself, Matt, like uh, working with you and seeing um, you explore the tension between being uh, a contributor and maintainer of Dask and wearing your coiled hat and seeing those di different sides of you is, is, is very interesting because you have another incentive structure outside coiled as someone who loves OSS and, and wants Dask to, to, to be highly successful as well, right? So you have multiple incentive structures. Yeah, and those are all sort of captured today. Uh, hopefully, I still <laughs> remain in control, yes. control of the company to the, to the distant future. Um, but yeah, right now, everything is fine. I think in five years, it might be a different story. Yeah. And that's where I think we need to start uh, planning ahead. Okay, well, I think this has been a, a fantastic episode. And I want to be conscious of your time. We've already been on for over an hour. So uh, is there anything to leave behind regarding you know, how to reach you or how to contribute or any sentiment from you, Matt and Hugo? Yeah, so you can reach me. I'm uh, mrocklin at Twitter, M-R-O-C-K-L-I-N. Uh, but you should really just go to coiled.io or if you want to, just pip install coiled, import coiled, and then create a coiled cluster. And you can literally be running distributed computations, you know, before Hugo finishes whatever it is he's going to say. Our on-ramp time is around two minutes. Um, you can also reach out to us at helloatcoil.io, and that'd be great if you if you take the, the product for a, for a test drive. Um, our our product's in beta, and it, it's currently free. So spin up some DAS clusters, uh, coil clusters, and, and let us know how you go. And we'd, we'd, we'd love it if, if you got in touch. I, I want to add, visit all the material. The content is great. Science Thursday is wonderful. I, I shared one episode with my friend. She's a data engineer at Nike. And I was assuming that they're not on AWS. So it was tips on how to get Dask working on Google Cloud. Awesome. Um, and so. yeah, and all of the stuff, like if you follow us on, on, on Twitter at CoilHQ, um, all the evangelism and fun initiatives we, we do with the community, which we, we I mean, Matt and I love love doing this so much, chatting with community members and and, and chatting with, um, having, having an audience for that as well. So join us for all of that by following us on Twitter. Awesome.